There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kremitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast with today's hosts, Blair and Colin. Blair, good to have you back in the hot seat. Glad to be here, Colin. It's always good. You must have been on the show five or six times now, I'm thinking. It feels that way. Yeah. Well, it's always more pleasant to have somebody else in that seat besides Greg. And so thank you for joining me today. Oh, I'm blushing. Just kidding, Greg. Greg, you're doing a great job. Last week, Greg and I did talk about the world of Yogi Berra and his unique, what are called Yogi-isms, exploring how they intersect with the realm of investing. And and Blair, one, one stands out to me, it's a Yogi-ism from Yogi Berra. It's tough to make predictions, especially about the future. That one, how does that one ring with you? Well, yeah, I've heard that one before on a, a few different people speaking. And you're doing a great job of speaking right now, by the way. I know. Uh, I'm obviously not prepared. I'm not ready to go. But yeah, no, it's, it's funny because it's true. You know, everybody thinks they can predict the future. We all do. And uh, when you're right, you, you definitely pull at the bullhorn and look what yeah. I predicted. Well, I mean, you just have to bang the table long enough and then you'll eventually be right, whether you think it's a bear market or a bull market. But this particular quote sparked some reflection on a common dilemma that that I run into, I'm sure you run into as well. And it's this distinction between a broker and a fiduciary. And where this came from, Blair, is recently I went to a, a shawarma place downtown that shall remain unnamed because I wouldn't want to call anybody out. But I've been going to this place for I bet you, Blair, I bet you it's been 25 years I've been going to this place for, off and on. And over the time, I've gotten to know the owner a little bit. I was sitting up at the table, and my cell phone was open, and it was just open to a stock quote screen, and the owner came over, and he asked this question, are you a broker? Have you had that question before? I get it quite a bit. And so this term broker, I'm not particularly fond of, because we do not typically broker transactions. So in the interest of time and not wanting to interrupt the short bit of time to enjoy my meal, I simply nodded and said yes. And what followed with this particular person was that they treated me like a gatekeeper of exclusive information accessible only to those in our line of work. And this is so far from the truth. So today we're going to dissect this notion of being an information gatekeeper and belonging to this secret society versus the reality of what we do. Yeah, that's right. I mean, as we know, a stockbroker is really essentially a professional who facilitates the buying and selling of financial securities on on behalf of their clients. You know, the securities encompass everything we've talked about in the podcast, stocks, bonds, other investment products. I mean, it's important to note that stockbrokers are typically employed by brokerage firms, and their primary objective is to execute trades aligned with their clients' investment goals. You know, it's, it's funny, a recent survey by the CFA Institute revealed that only 40% of investors can accurate, accurately differentiate between a financial advisor who is a fiduciary and one who's not. 
highlighting a significant knowledge gap among, uh, you know, the investing public. And this is where that broker conversation always comes in. You know, when you, when we run into people, they say, oh, are you a broker? But that is an eye-opening statistic that 40% of people actually can't differentiate. And I think it's uh, actually higher than that, to be quite honest. But it does underscore the relevance of our discussion today. So when we're delving into the realm of stock brokers, which is essentially what we used to do back in the day, like when I started in this industry, I was a stock broker. We were brokering stock transactions. That's what people paid us for. And over time, we've had evolution in how we do business and the way we invest money. And it's essential to grasp some of those differences. So one of them is a compensation structure. So according to this report by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, which is the regulator in the U.S., in Canada, it would be, I guess, IROC or some of the provincial securities registration people. But according to the SEC, a substantial portion of a stockbroker's income often stems from commissions on executed trades. And in 2020, they reported that number to be something like $27 billion just in the U.S., which is a pretty big number, $27 billion in commissions. Some brokers do offer financial planning, whereas others just simply execute trades. My question to you, Blair, is how does that differ from a fiduciary, if you have a broker that's doing financial planning versus, well, let's just stay, stay there. A, a broker who's doing financial planning, how would that differentiate between a fiduciary to which you and I are? Yeah, that's a good question. So shifting our focus to fiduciaries and, and talking about them, a study that we looked at by the National Bureau of Economic Research found that households working with fiduciary advisors experience on average about 50% higher returns on their investment over a 10-year period compared to those partnering with non-fiduciaries. That's pretty significant. It is. And, and again, you know, these numbers, I think sometimes could be, could be higher. And it really underscores the impact that the fiduciary standard, which something we can talk about as well, can have on investment outcomes. So being a fiduciary is, is a higher standard for us. So we're both fiduciary. So it means that we are someone who is legally and ethically bound to act in the best interests of their clients and, and really prioritizing their interests above their own and disclosing any potential conflict of interest. So fiduciaries go beyond merely executing trades. We provide holistic financial advice, taking into account factors like tolerance, financial goals, and the overall financial well-being of the clients. Yeah, I think you said disclosing, but I think you meant disclosing. That is what I meant. That was just kind of a funny thing, so I just had to poke fun. Anyways, those definitely are compelling numbers and compelling figures, and we can talk about the fees as well. So fiduciaries in our world tend to be portfolio managers. We're licensed as portfolio managers, and the fees for that service hover somewhere around 1% of assets under management. So how we're paid is 1% of the assets that we manage as a fee. And it puts us on the same side of the table. The only way that our income goes up is if portfolios go up. Conversely, brokers who earn commission on trades, well, their commissions can vary pretty widely. You know, it could be, it might be 1%. I find most of the time it's not. Even if it is 1%, maybe it's a 1% charge to buy something and then a 1% charge to sell something, which... I don't want to be very strong at math, Blair. I think one plus one equals two. I believe you're right. 
So it's not really the same 1%. But on average, there was a survey that was done in the States, and it said that the uh, stock and bond trades typically had about a $45 median commission. Now, this would be the whole universe. That would be discount brokerages. That would be, there's even zero commission structures in the States if you just want to trade. So I think if you looked at that number in Canada from a full service brokerage, much like the one we work at, there's there's no way it's $45. It's way higher. So the primary distinction lays in the level of responsibility and standard of care to which you mentioned. You know, that stockbroker may offer advice. They aren't necessarily held to the same standards that a fiduciary is held to they may not actually be acting in the client's best interest. I'm not suggesting there's a lot of bad people out there. I'm just saying that if your incentive is to trade versus an incentive to give advice, those are different things. Yeah, absolutely, Colin. The fee structure is a critical aspect to consider when selecting a financial professional, whether it be an advisor or broker. Investors need to be aware of how their advisors compensate it and whether those incentives align with their own financial goals. The fiduciary standard that we have to buy by sets a higher bar and is really designed to ensure that clients receive advice generally in their best interests. You know, we're not hawking products where this advice or these investments are in line with the plan we did. And really they're free from potential conflicts that would influence recommendations doesn't matter what we recommend as long as it's in line with what the client goals are. Exactly. Because if the whole thing is just to broker transactions and earn commissions on trades, well, then that might create conflicts of interest. Whereas fiduciaries often charge a fee for their service, which as you said, aligns probably more closely with the client's success, not the broker's success. Yeah, precisely. You know, the fee structure can significantly impact the recommendations clients receive. Fiduciaries aims to be transparent about fees, ensuring they're fair and and reasonable. You know what this reminds me of, Blair, is buying and selling houses. When's the last time you bought or sold a house? About 10 years ago. Okay. So when you bought that house, you went through a realtor, I imagine. That's true. Yep. And the realtor took down some list of things you were looking for and showed you a number of homes and then you picked one. Yep. What if I told you that, and I've seen this happen, unfortunately, in that arena, there is a discount commission on one house and the house next door does not have a discounted commission. Which house do you think that that realtor might be prone to show you first? Yeah. And if if you don't know that, the answer is obviously that there is an incentive to sell the one with the higher commission. This is that person's living and they might be a good person, but at the end of the day, you, you want to make the higher commission. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, look, I'm not trying to knock realtors. Like I think realtors have done actually a very good job of safeguarding their commission structure over the years. Our fees have come down dramatically in the last 20 years. Whereas fees for other services have not necessarily come down. They've stayed very high. So again, if your options are A, B, or C, but C has a discounted commission, they might only show you A and B. And unfortunately, when it comes to the stock market, it might actually be the same case. You might have somebody you're working with that tends to focus on the things that have a higher built-in fee. Yeah, it really boils down to the level of service. And big one is trust. 
that you seek. At the end of the day, if you trust somebody that they're doing the right things for you and the fiduciary standard kind of then is embedded in it that we have a lot of compliance When we chose to go to fiduciary. It really put a lot of guardrails up for ourselves, but really at the end of the day, we can provide great advice, great planning. And, you know, if you just desire someone illegally bound to always act in your best interest, providing comprehensive financial advice, you know, a fiduciary is, is a good fit just because what we said, you know, that higher, higher standard. On the flip side, if you're comfortable with a more traditional relationship, buying and selling security, you know, a, a stockbroker is, could be the suitable choice for you. So we've actually had people referred to us over the years that have come in looking for a stockbroker relationship and it's just not a fit and that's okay. Not everybody has to fit in with everybody. But if we're not focusing on brokering deals, what should investors be doing to fund their goals, Blair? Well, then we're delving into the uh, crucial world of financial planning and the data-driven approach of goal-based planning. So let's make numbers exciting. Well, I think they can be exciting because I know in most recent meetings with clients, like kind of regular reviews, usually people want to talk about rate of return. And guess what? The last 18 months hasn't been that great. I don't know if you noticed. I'm trying to block it out. Well, it just hasn't been that great. I mean, it's the bond market was down, the stock market was down pretty significantly up until recently. Right now, actually, the S&P 500 is up 20% year to date, but which is actually a pretty significant number. But if you look back to last year, somebody might say, you know, last year I didn't make any money. And we'd say, yeah, you're actually right. But if you're using a goals-based planning approach, maybe they didn't have to make a lot of return to meet the goals that they had set out. And you know that it's a cyclical approach and you're going to have up years and down years. So that's when you say, let's make numbers exciting, I suppose. So why should listeners care about financial planning and setting data-driven goals? Well, I mean, financial planning is like having a, a GPS for your money. It's essential for making informed decisions. And when we talk about goal-based planning, we're talking about using data to tailor your financial strategy to meet, you know, really specific life goals. It's not just about wealth accumulation. It's about strategic wealth management. Okay. Now you said data. I'm going to tell you right now, Greg says data. So there's a difference right there between the two of you. He's just wrong. But when, when we say data or data, what kind of data or data are we talking about? We're talking about understanding your financial landscape. So income, expenses, you know, your assets, your liabilities, the, the whole shebang. That must be a Saskatchewan term. Maybe. Rural term anyways. Imagine having a, a financial dashboard that shows you exactly where you are and where you're headed. So it's about making financial decisions grounded in real numbers. So it's like having a personal CFO. So how does this data tie into setting and achieving these financial goals? And I ask this of you because you are the, the guy on our team with a certified financial planner designation. So you should be able to answer that question, right? Yeah, that's a great question. Let's say you have a goal of retiring comfortably in 20 years. So using data, you can analyze your current savings rates, project future expenses, and really determine the investment returns needed to reach that goal. It's, it's about making your aspirations tangible and achievable through data-backed planning. So it's not just about saying, like, I want to retire comfortably. It's about saying, I need to save X amount of dollars per month, invest it wisely with a reasonable rate of return, and track my progress. Exactly. It's about turning dreams into actionable steps. 
data helps you set realistic expectations and imaginary and measure your progress along the way. You ever heard of that Deming Plan, Do, Check, Act model? I have. I love that one. If you want to accomplish something, you've got to come up with a plan. That's the first step. Whether it's buying a house or your investment portfolio or having a kid, I don't know. <laughs> you need a plan. And then the second part of that is you got to do. That's the D. So P-D-C-A. It's plan, do, check, act. So do means you actually have to put it into motion. And then the check part is kind of like the goals-based planning. You got to look back at your results and see where you are. And if you're not getting the results that you had planned on, well, then maybe you need to make adjustments. And that's the act part. So that's that plan, do, check, act. So I love that. I use that a lot. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a reason, right? It works. Well, and I think where it fits in here is that there's a lot of people that can get overwhelmed with the idea of diving into financial data. And, you know, especially when I've been in meetings over the years where you'll have a financial planner, not yourself, but someone else that will show 50 different graphs and charts. And I guess a graph is a chart. So that's the same thing, but tables, Excel tables of just various things. And you can kind of see the client's eyes just sort of glass over. Is that the term glass over? Glaze. Glaze over. Yeah. Thank you. You can see that they've kind of lost them because it's just too much data and you got to sort of figure out, well, where do you start? So maybe you can answer that. Where, where should somebody start with this data? Yeah. So the first step is gathering it all. So obviously the, the more accurate the information, the better the, the plan or the assessment's going to be and, and really knowing your income, track your spending, list of assets and liabilities. So these are, I mean, there are fantastic apps and tools that can help you automate the process. And, and once a clear snapshot, you can apply areas for improvement, set specific measurable and achievable goals. But so that, that's kind of the first step is, is gathering it all. And then we usually take it for our clients specifically. You know, we, we gather the information, put it on. So that's step one. We go through and we set up a bit of a, a financial assessment this is where you are now. And it adds some clarity for the clients. And for some people, they're just like, yeah, that's where I thought I was. And this is what you're in pace for. And for others, it's, wow, this isn't good or this is really bad. And then step two is kind of to make it really short is then, okay, this is what you're on pace for. Where do you want to be? So set those goals. And then the difference between the two. You may be on pace for the goals you want. You know, I want to retire at this, or it may show you that you could retire earlier, or we can help you in terms of, well, you want to do this, but these are some headwinds. And so the first step is just gathering the information. And, but that's just as important as what really do you want at the end of the day? Just not where you're going to be, but what do you want? Yeah. Cause the question I get often is like, well, how much do I need to retire? And the answer to me is always like, well, how much do you plan on spending? Anybody can retire at any age. You can go on social benefits if you need it, you know, but is that the life that you want? So I would say to anybody listening to this, hopefully they're still listening to this, is a good book that I would call out is by Carl Richards, and it's called The One-Page Financial Plan. And Carl's been on the show a couple of years ago now. I find that to be a really easy read for people because it just does exactly what you mentioned. It's just getting you to a point where you can list on one page what you own, what you owe, how much you have coming in, and you can pretty easily figure out, am I going to be okay? 
Well, yeah, at the end of the day, and that is a great book. It's keeping it simple because, you know, as you said, we've sat in where planners have popped down a 125-page financial plan. And And want to go through every single page. If we don't want to go through it, imagine the client. Yeah, and unfortunately, some of those planners, and nobody here, but what I found is that when they're doing that financial planning, it's it's actually just a veiled insurance sales process. I guess my question is, who needs to do that financial plan? At that point, is it being done to create benefit for the end user or is it done to to sell them something? That goes back to what we talked about at the start was, you know, a fiduciary. So that responsibility of, okay, here's here's the plan. How are we going to hit goals? Making that plan dynamic. So we don't always have to do a big plan every meeting. We've, we're always adjusting. We're always making act if we're, if we're not on pace or if we're way ahead of place and trusting that the portfolio matches that goal. So it's, it's a bit of that trust knowing that we're always planning. I think where people got it wrong last year was all the planning we did over the previous years maybe showed that everybody needed to be at a certain dollar amount. And then last year, of course, when the bond market was down and the stock market was down at the same time, it created a lot of stress for people because that doesn't happen very often. It's not that it doesn't happen, but it doesn't happen very often. And so a lot of people looked at their portfolios and they said, you know, I'm losing money in bonds, I'm losing money in stocks. I can't take money out of my house. What am I supposed to do, right? From the market perspective, those markets are cyclical. And if you fast forward to this year, bond markets are kind of flat right now. Equity markets are up. In Canada, they're up about 7%. And as I mentioned in the US, the S&P 500 is up 20. The NASDAQ's up 37% year to date. That's a big number. The Dow Jones is up, I think, 7 or 8. So when we do those plans for people, we're not using one-year numbers. What's a typical like rate of return that you would use in a financial plan when you're working with somebody, Blair? You know, we're pretty conservative when we use it. So probably around that 4%, 4 or 5% annualized, you know, sometimes a little higher if they're younger. You know, we'd rather be, nobody's ever retired and complained to us that they save too much money. So using more conservative numbers means, you know, it's, it's more a realistic goal in terms of getting there. Inflation has been, the only thing we talked about inflation for 10 years is why there wasn't any. And now it's, that's all people talk about is how high it is. It's funny that everybody talks about how high it is now when actually right now it's been trending down dramatically. I think in the U.S. on a month-over-month basis this last month, inflation actually ran at zero. That's zero, Z-E-R-O, or in the U.S. No, that's that's Z-E-R-O. In Canada, it'd be Z-E-R-O. That's correct. Yeah, I got that right. Good. Okay, listen, I think we're getting off topic here, but for our data-loving listeners out there, I guess what you're saying is embrace the numbers. They're your financial allies. Yeah, and stick to the plan. If you're switching up your plan because we had a year like last year, you probably should get a new planner. If you're switching up your portfolio just because the markets are down, then it wasn't a very good portfolio. The plan and the portfolio are set up for markets and for challenging times like this. You know what it reminds me of is like every so often, you know, we live in Calgary. Every so often in seasons outside of winter, it will snow in Calgary. I've seen snow in June, July, September. So I guess it's the same type of analogy. If it snowed just by chance at the beginning of June, which is very, very rare, but it has happened, would you put your snow tires back on? 
you'd say, well, it's going to be gone in a little bit and I'm going to let it ride. Why is the market any different? If you get a snowy day in the markets, is it going to make you change your long-term plan? I think that's what you're saying. That's just it. Portfolios are, I always use the description of a boat. If your boat is only designed for perfectly calm weather, probably not a very good boat. Yeah, that's a, that's a problem. All right. Well, listen, well, thanks, Blair. Thanks for joining me today. Appreciate you being on the show. Thanks for having me. I guess that'll do it for today and uh, we'll catch you next time. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2023.